y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Today is part four of our conversation with Dr. Carlos Ayer, historian, Yale professor, and author of Reformations, a history of the Reformation era of Europe. Today, we're going to talk about Anabaptists, Mennonites, torture, and the mystery of why prostitutes get so disappointed with modern historical conferences. I want to talk about the the rise of the Anabaptist. If you don't mind first talking about where they got that name. Also, if you would tell a little bit of their story and how they would end up being the people in America that we buy furniture from and we get stuck behind their horse and buggies on the road. Yes, it all depends on where you live, what kind of Anabaptist you meet. Yeah, the Anabaptists, um, it's an incorrect name to give them because what it means is um, they were they were accused of being rebaptizers because they didn't believe in infant baptism. They thought uh, th- there are two things that go together in their vision, uh, and this begins in the 1520s. The the people who eventually end up being called Anabaptists reject the idea that the church should include absolutely everyone in the world, which was the situation in the 16th century in all of Europe because the Orthodox and the Catholics both practiced infant baptism, which meant that if you were born, you became a Christian, oh. right? And there was it was actually illegal and punishable not to bring your children for baptism. So this includes everybody. Well, as part of the, the movement begun in 1517 by Martin Luther, and in Switzerland in 1519 by Ulrich Zwingli, you begin to have um, others who are more extreme in their literal interpretation of the Bible, right? So the, the Protestant battle cry was scripture alone, scripture alone. The church has to be uh, committed to grounding itself in the Bible and nothing but the Bible. So what happens when you read in the Bible, in the Acts of the Apostles, or in the letters of Paul and the other apostolic letters included in the Bible, you you don't find any direct mention of children being baptized. Everyone who's baptized in the New Testament is an adult. So some of them begin thinking, and they also begin thinking that... um, you know, maybe maybe the church should aim to be more exclusive, right? We, the church should only have genuine believers. And, and how do you define a genuine believer? Well, a believer is somebody who's committed, who has a, a spiritual experience. This begins gradually, but it really takes off full blast in Zurich, in Switzerland, in the new reformed church established by Ulrich Zwingli. And it's very interesting if you look at the demographics 
Zwingli was in his late 30s when, when he leads the Reformation in Zurich, mid to late 30s. And his staunchest followers are all in their 20s. And they're the ones who actually take risks like breaking images and so on to test, test the status quo. And these 20-somethings actually begin the Protestant Reformation in Zurich by staging a sausage-eating party, right. which Swingley attends, but he doesn't partake of the sausage. Now, they do this on Ash Wednesday when you're supposed to fast and, and not eat any meat. So they test the law because that was also against the law was to eat meat on, on, on these uh, fast days. And Zwingli's there watching and approving and basically clapping his hands. Well, lo and behold, <laughs> the leaders of this these 20-somethings are the ones who start uh, interpreting the Bible more literally and uh, arguing that the church should only consist of believers, adult believers, and that baptizing children is wrong. So things continue to get tense in Zurich. Zwingli now is very upset with these youngsters who have actually basically put him in control. He wouldn't have succeeded without them. The arguing goes on and on and on. These 20-somethings, as is the case with most 20-somethings, start having kids and they refuse to bring them for baptism. <laughs> so Zwingli and the city councils and everybody's very upset and they, they, they sort of set an ultimatum. You either bring your children for baptism or you know, you're know you out, whatever that means. They decide to really restart the apostolic church by having a baptismal ceremony where uh, the, the two leaders um, baptized all the adults in the room. And then at the end, uh, baptize each other. They have now become re-baptizers in the eyes of the law, right? And there, the rest of the story is not very pretty for them, right? They're, 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 they begin to be persecuted. The very first Protestant martyr in Zurich is a young man, Felix Mantz, M-A-N-T-Z, who was executed for being a re-baptizer. And, and the punishment is cruel. Basically, the, the Zurich authorities are saying, oh, you, you, you like water? You want some water? We'll give you water. Felix is, is dropped with weights into the river and drowned. And yeah. most of the others flee. They flee. So they actually see themselves then, this is kind of a testament to them, that they are a carbon copy of the apostolic church because this is what happened in Jerusalem when they're persecuted the early Christians, the first generation, what do they do? They flee. And this is the beginning of the Anabaptists. Well, I mean, I think they're, they're hitting on something, the fact that, and a lot of people wrestle with this, especially if you're raised in a Christian home, or probably any faith for that matter. At some point, I feel like you have to make a choice that's outside of your parents' choice. Okay, I'm going to continue this faith, or maybe even start it for the first time, because it's maybe it's hardly a your own faith if it's something you were instructed to do. Do you feel like that that's what they were thinking at that time? Well, yeah, because eventually what it evolves into theologically is the affirmation that you have to have a spiritual conversion experience, right? Where as as the descendants, uh, theological descendants 
of the Anabaptists are, are actually, you know, evangelicals who say you have to accept Christ. You accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And at that moment, you know, when you accept, that's when, that's your conversion. You're born again. You're born again, yeah. yes. Literally, yeah. you're born again. When what is, what is baptism? Baptism is a new birth. So they're not aware of it because none of the leaders of this movement uh, at first are theologians or historians. Some actually are later, like Michael Sattler, who was actually a, a monk before he, he converted, a Catholic monk. They are uh, replicating or duplicating several early movements in church history, but especially the, the, the so-called Donatist church in North Africa, which claimed that the church really needed, people in the church needed to be morally perfect. And the Donatist church began uh, during persecution because during persecution, before Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire, uh, you could escape persecution if you denounced your faith, your Christian faith. Oh, fine, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. They'd let you go. And then they gave you a little certificate. <laughs> they actually gave you a certificate that you had renounced your faith and then you were saved. Well, those who survived the persecution and had not denounced their faith, of course, began to exclude those who had denounced their faith. Sure. And uh, this is the reason Felix Mons was executed. The Donatist Church survived for several centuries. It eventually became part of Roman law when the empire was Christian. It became part of Roman law that rebaptism was a capital offense because the Donatists claimed that any priest, you know, any clergy person who had renounced his faith was no longer a Christian and therefore any rituals they performed were invalid. So if you had been baptized by a priest who had renounced its faith, your baptism was invalid and you had to be rebaptized. That's that's the, the, the irony of Felix Mons's drowning is that in Zurich they were actually applying an old Roman law that went all the way back to the Donatist uh, problem. Right. The idea of perfectionism, you know, of having a perfect church goes way back, way back to the first, second century. And we really don't know much about the first century of, you know, how much forgiveness can you give to somebody who keeps screwing up mm -hmm. and yet still calls himself or herself a Christian. It was Augustine, St. Augustine, in the fourth and fifth century, who really bequeathed this theology to the, to the Western Christian world. And there were others like him in the Eastern Christian world who also bequeathed this uh, idea that the church could never be perfect, right? That God had some mysterious plan and the church included the saved as well as the reprobate or those who were headed for hell. Right. And some people actually just don't accept the baptism they were given, which in the West, the West, thanks to Augustine especially, develops very rich theology of, of the concept of grace. You know, grace is this gift given by God. And, and, you know, of course, it involves the entire Trinity. It's not just the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, right? You get, you get God's grace, but you can accept it or reject it. But you have to keep trying. You have to bring as many people into the church as possible because you never know when people will have a change of heart, change their will. So up until the last moment, you have a chance to accept grace 
beg for forgiveness, repent, and be saved. So that's why you baptize infants, to put them on the right foot, right? But also, after a certain point, and this has a very long and checkered history, right? the concept of the church being a single institution that works in cooperation with the government makes for a single completely Christian state or society. Nobody can opt out of the church after a certain point in the Roman Empire. Then the Roman Empire falls, you know, and all kinds of things happen, especially when these Germanic tribes uh, swoop down and some of them are Christian, some of them are Christian heretics, but many of them are not even Christian. And everything is up for grabs, so to speak. But basically, the short story is by the time you get to about the year 1054, which is when the Catholics and Orthodox churches uh, split with each other, almost all of Europe has been converted to Christianity, except for uh, some areas in the Baltic Sea present-day Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. They were the last to be converted. But by then, everywhere in the Orthodox world and in the Catholic world, everyone is baptized. Only Jews are excluded, right? Jews, they they made their choice, and that's a mystery, and God uh, chose them, and they're still his chosen people. You can't force baptism on them. So only the children of Jews are allowed not to be baptized. Uh, Of course, in like, for instance, uh, Spain and Portugal, which were under Muslim rule for centuries in the Muslim areas. Yeah, you didn't. It wasn't it wasn't the same. However, the vast majority of people who lived in Spain and Portugal under Muslim rule, they baptized their children and there was still a single church. But um, you could convert to Judaism if you were a Christian or convert to Islam uh, under Islamic rule and, and there is no punishment. But in the rest of Europe, if you you know renounced your baptism and became Jewish or Muslim, that was a crime too. Eventually, the, the Anabaptists would be called Mennonites. Is that correct? One branch. One branch of the Anabaptists. Okay. There were many different Anabaptist churches. You know, I think one of, one of the more helpful ways of thinking of the entire group of people called Anabaptists, that is, those who believe in adult baptism only, it, it helps to think of them pretty much like uh, present-day congregational churches, they set up their own covenant with with God. Uh, they all know they're on the, in the same ballpark, mm-hmm. but they decide to ha- have an individual contract or covenant with God. And um, there are many different kinds of Anabaptist groups. Unlike present-day Congregationalists, though, there can be major differences of opinion because you can break them down into different types, right? The, the main group from which the Mennonites descend were pacifists right another literal reading of new testament commands he who lives by the sword shall die by the sword he who strikes on the right cheek give him the left cheek 
total pacifism. That's one group. And the, the folks in Zurich were this group. However, other Anabaptists begin popping up who are not pacifists. And some of them are also uh, apocalyptic in their outlook. They think the end of the world is about to happen. And some of them become what I call apocalyptic activists. And they're not at all pacifist. And they think Jesus will not return until the godly, that is themselves, mm-hmm. the Anabaptists, these Anabaptists, wage war on the ungodly. Dang. And the worst case scenario actually comes into existence in the German city of Münster, M-U-N-S-T-E-R, which is right on the border with the Low Countries, where these apocalyptic activists take over the entire city and and many people flee but those who stay have to become part of this new apocalyptic kingdom where um well weird things start to happen private property is abolished (laughs) just like the early church right right in the acts of the apostles everybody shares in common but then, you know, you read the Bible literally and you start to um, not make distinctions between the New and the Old Testament, uh, you might end up with polygamy again. Because, you know, Abraham had more than one wife. So they reinstate polygamy in Münster. And they have these elders who are prophets. And the elders end up having like a dozen wives. <laughs> and they actually pass a law in Münster that any woman who's offered uh, marriage and declines it shall be executed. (laughs) So how do they justify that? I I have a bigger question later about justification of some of this stuff, especially if they're all about sola scriptura. I mean, where exactly does it say that? This, well, depends on what hermeneutic, that is what, what kind of interpretation you put on the biblical text. You know, does the New Testament completely cancel out the Old Testament? is the question they ask themselves. And their answer is no, because the world is about to end. They also start thinking some really strange uh, things, such as, for instance, in Munster, they start to um, bring in the idea of reincarnation. And just as there's that passage where, um, actually, I was just reading it a couple days ago, Jesus' disciples ask him about John the Baptist, who was he? And he says, if you can, if you can accept it, you know, he is Elijah reborn. Mm-hmm. On that single passage, which can be interpreted many, many, many different ways, the Münster Anabaptists um, believe that some of the Old Testament figures are, in fact, being reborn. And the leader of the Münster Anabaptists, John of Leiden, who um, was an artisan, you know, he wasn't a clergy person proclaims himself the reincarnation of King David, who has returned. Needless to say, (laughs) Münster is attacked by both Catholics and Lutherans. Catholic and Lutheran armies lay siege to Münster, and they defeat the Anabaptist uh, radicals. And Münster ends up actually uh, returning fully to Catholicism. Even though when the Anabaptists took over, it was about half Lutheran. Long story short, the leaders of this movement are executed. The name Munster conjures up the worst possible 
scenarios for those who, who fear something like that will happen again. And that's basically the end of the apocalyptic activism. And from that moment forward, 1536 is when Münster is retaken. It's pacifists who are Anabaptists. And one of these pacifists who had lived very close to Münster and had seen the whole thing happen with great horror was Menno Simons. And the church that he begins in the Low Countries ends up being known as the Mennonite Church. The followers of Menno Simons, right, spread out all over Europe. There would be eventually different kinds of Mennonites. Uh, and one branch of the Mennonite family are the Amish. But they, they've had all sorts of um, schisms and mini schisms, uh, parting of the ways over different issues. There's another group, for instance, also part of the same large family, uh, the Hutterites, followers of Jacob Hutter, H-U-T-T-E-R. They practiced communism. They practiced communal farming. No individual owned the land. The, the, the church, the community as a whole owned everything and shared in the work and in the profits. In essence, the Hutterites lived a lot like Catholic monks and nuns except they've married and had children. <laughs> and there's still many, many Hutterites around. But the Amish are, are a, a branch of the Mennonite family that um, consistently refuse to accept technological advances as unnecessary, hmm. as vain, as things that would make you proud, right? So um, that's why they still use horses and buggies, right. Re refuse to um, link themselves to the electrical grid. However, distinctions have to be made all the time. Some Amish will generate their own electrical power with generators. They're not part of the grid. All right. However, they won't use that electricity for lighting. They'll use it to preserve food right. <laughs> and so on. And Mennonites have had many, many um, partings of the ways over technology, but even not just technology. For instance, I think the, the most well-known case uh, is the parting of the ways that came between black bumper Mennonites and chrome bumper Mennonites. I've never heard that, so do tell. Uh, you, you accept the internal combustion engine, right? Uh, you drive a car. All the early cars, and especially Ford, you know, Ford said, you, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. Right. That was a thing, right? <laughs> so those early cars had black bumpers. I forget when, what decade it was, probably the 30s, when they start putting chrome on the bumpers. Well, if you're a good Christian, should you do something so vain as to have a chrome bumper on, a totally unnecessary chrome bumper on your car? And they divide over this issue, right. which, of course, has many other repercussions you know how you dress can you accept the latest fashion or should you you know be more uh tied to, to to the tradition of your church so you have mennonites nowadays who you know especially the women they, they dress it's not just conservatively but you know they wear long dresses they wear little caps on their head and right. so on almost they look almost like nuns in a way right for us who are you know living in the the world. Yeah, uh, us English, as they call us. Yes.
When you did your research, as of course as a professor, but also for your book, was there any advantage or any reason to talk with Mennonites and Amish here in America? I mean, do they know their own history? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. They, they're, they, you know, they're very, very aware of their history, much okay. more so, I think, than most other Christian denominations. Okay, well, do tell. You know, this is, this, this is what defines them. It's their identity. It's their, their identity is their history. As they see it, the church had ceased to exist in the latter days of the Roman Empire. And then they got restarted. And they, they restarted the true church. They are the true church. Of course they know their history and they know why they're different from the world. And, you know, I, 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 I've known enough Mennonites who have studied with me, right? Mennonites who, who go to non-Mennonite colleges and universities who have studied with me. So I know from them, I know, you know, not just teaching them, dealing with them. Uh, one of my doctoral students, uh, the Mennonite, first generation of his family to actually go to university, you know, among the English. The Mennonites uh, have started a new college in Boston. It was two years ago, three years ago. Sattler College, named after one of their, the, the founders of Anabaptist movement, Michael Sattler. And um, my student, Hans Lehmann, is now teaching at Sattler College. But Mennonites, um, one, one branch of the family, became very active missionaries and have missions all over the world. Uh, and many people don't know this, but there, there are large Mennonite communities in Mexico and Central America and in Latin America. Uh, which have been created by Mennonite missionaries. There, there, uh, there's this branch of, of Mennonite family. They are as active in mission work, one could say, as the Mormons. Right? And they have actually picked up a lot of converts, especially in Latin America, where you know you meet a Mennonite who you know doesn't look German. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's the you know, most of them, the, their origins are German or Central European. Or in the case of the Hutterites, you know, they ended up in, in Russia and the Ukraine. So you can meet all different kinds of Mennonites. Um, and this is a supposedly a true story told by someone I knew in college who lived in um, Amish country. Her father uh, was driving down the road and lo and behold, there was an Amish man hitchhiking. So he wouldn't drive a car, but he, he would accept a ride in a car. Right. So he gets into the car, and my, my friend's dad was smoking. So the, the, the Amish man starts sermonizing him, criticizing him for smoking. And he said, if God had wanted you to smoke, he would have put a smokestack on your head. <laughs> so he stopped the car and said, yeah, if God wanted you to ride in a car, he would have given you wheels. Get out. <laughs> Here, uh, where I live, the the Amish and the Mennonites, they they're allowed to have farm equipment, electrical right. equipment. So yeah. they can't have cars. So when they go to Walmart or wherever, they you they see them place. all crammed into like a combine or or a tractor or something. Oh, they go in the tractor. Yeah, oh. yeah, the whole family. It looks like fun from a kid's point of view. Oh, do they like uh, have a little cart they pull to no. put everybody in? No, they all stuff in the little cab. Just Oh my God! Kids no, sitting on that. laps and all that. I've never seen that. I've been to Lancaster County many times, mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, 
Yeah. And there, you know, they have to put a, a, a reflective triangle on the back of their buggies. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that had to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Really? Yes. Yes. They steadfastly refused this imposition by the state on them, you know, to put something like a reflective marker on their buggies. But so many of them were getting, you know, creamed uh-huh. on the road at night that um, – I guess Pennsylvania passed along and it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court decided that, you know, public safety outweighed whatever religious freedom uh, considerations were, were in place. Yeah, because having that flashy triangle is showing off. Yes, yeah. well, I guess it's, you know, it's not in the Acts of the Apostles. I want to bring up a dark thing about the Reformation, uh, the use of torture. In your book, of course, you describe some of the more creative, we'll say, methods that was exacted on these so-called heretics. Can you explain how both the, the Protestants and the Catholics that practiced it, how did they justify it? Again, to go back to that, treating your neighbor as yourself, even though he may be in error, is there any kind of scripture that they fell upon to to justify against some of this the the cruel cruelness of it? I think you have to make a distinction between two types of dangerous people in the Protestant tradition, and the same applies for the Catholic tradition. Right? Mm. In many ways, this is something that Protestants uh, carried over from Catholicism, virtually unchanged. The Catholic Church, there are two kinds of dangerous people: heretics and witches. Heretics may or may not be consciously in league with the devil, but witches always are. Heretics are dangerous because they pollute your community. And they pollute it in different ways, but you know, they pollute it ideologically and theologically. They put wrong ideas in people's minds. They they mix they truth and lies. Yeah. Yeah. So they've got it all wrong. And that they're dangerous. And they, they need to be expelled from the community. In the case of Anabaptists, for instance, you're literally just expelled. They're not going to torture or kill you. They just say, fine, if you're not in our church, you're going to hell anyway. That's your punishment. Goodbye. However, the idea of um, putting the community in danger morphs in different directions in different Protestant traditions. But one of the greatest fears is that if the community allows a heretic to survive, God is going to get angry because that person is destroying his church, right? So the idea of divine wrath or divine retribution is one of the main reasons that you don't tolerate heretics, which is why in Geneva, they burn heretics. And in Zurich, they drown the Anabaptist heretics. In other places, they, they, they're hung or, or garroted and you know, choked to death. In many places, there is such a fine line between church and state, right, that the heretic is also a threat to the state. So in England, for instance, Catholics considered heretics are also, by definition, traitors to the state because they're not accepting the Church of England, which is uh, headed by the monarch. So in England... Um, when when Catholics are killed 
public executions, they're not just killed. They're hung, drawn, and quartered, which means that they, they, they hang you, they drop you, but you don't quite die. They revive you. They tie your four limbs to four different horses and pull you in four directions and you get ripped apart. But before you get to that point, you'll get disemboweled. And this is all justified by the state because there's another important distinction carried over from medieval Catholicism. The church itself does not do any torturing or killing. That is done by the state. The state is protecting itself and protecting its people from these dangerous heretics. Which is, as you can imagine, the same thing applies to them, but they're far worse because they're in league with the devil. Mm -hmm. So this is why Protestants and Catholics both, uh, regardless of the denomination in Protestantism, they persecute witches in the 17th century especially. And we all know, you know everybody knows about Salem, uh -huh. Massachusetts, which is the, sort of the last gasp of the witchcraft persecutions, late 17th century. Um, there are maps that kind of graph where witches were persecuted and um, they were persecuted all over the map by both Catholics and Protestants. And Germany was the worst place to be a witch. Mm -hmm. um, and nobody knows for sure how many thousands were, were executed. So um, torture, you know, can be part of the execution. Like the Anabaptists at Münster, they're not just uh, killed. Um, they're skinned alive before they're killed. And then they hang their bodies, their corpses in cages from the steeple of the tallest steeple uh, in Münster. And those bodies remained up there in those cages until they just disintegrated. The cages are still there. St. Lambert's Church. However, the the cages are now replicas because the Allied bombers <laughs> flattened Münster and the original cages were are gone. But they, when they rebuilt the church, they put the cages back up as a reminder. See, it's a reminder. Hey, watch it. You know, uh -huh. this is where, uh, you know, religion gone wrong uh, is very dangerous. And this is where you might end up. Was there any pushback by any uh, oh, yeah there were yeah go ahead. there were individuals individuals who called for toleration but they were they were in the vast minority i can understand you don't want to end up you know losing your skin and you know filleted and all that stuff jeez oh yeah, it's awful but there's one um sebastian castello who uh was very outspoken against the execution of heretics said to 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 execute a heretic is not to kill a bad idea. It's to kill a man. <laughs> yeah. There are historians, and I agree with, with this take on toleration. Yes, there were people who called for toleration. And, you know, the Anabaptists would never torture or execute anybody. Except for the ones in Munster. <laughs> right. they, they actually know any, any, any woman who refused an offer of marriage from those Anabaptists would be uh, decapitated and that was a means of execution but um there are those who argue that real toleration right did not emerge from any kind of idea or theory of toleration toleration simply emerged because people with different 
religious views lived side by side with one another in many places and they had to get along Mm -hmm. they just simply had to get along and toleration therefore emerged as a practical necessity before it became an ideology the kind uh, that, that is reflected in the constitution of the united states You're a medieval historian, right? Late Middle Ages. Late Middle Ages. Late okay. Middle. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I assume there's a community specific to your area of study. Like, I guess you guys have get-togethers, or you guys have a bar, or some place you all meet at, and you start to recognize each other. So, I, talk about that if you don't mind. I, I'm as a nerd, I'm kind of interested in that kind of thing. What, what's that community look like? And uh, when you do get together, what do you guys talk about? Well, we have these big conferences, and the conferences have different degrees of specialization. Um, for instance, you can have a local conference that just is regional. You can have a national conference. You can have an international conference. The focus can also be very narrow. For instance, um, every year in October, we hold the 16th Century Studies Conference. We get some people who talk about the 17th century, but that's okay. We, you know, we let them in. And then there's uh, the American Society of Church History. All of church history is covered at, the, at this conference. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a medieval conference, uh, perhaps the best known in the United States, is held in Kalamazoo, Michigan, every spring. And uh, so on and so forth in different levels of specialization. But then you have the big ones like uh american historical association my god uh it's it's all of history right but mostly american history uh and you see the people whose books you've read uh you become friends with some of them you get to know each other you serve in positions of responsibility you know either with the journal that's published by the society or organizing the next conference um, and everyone comes to know everyone to some extent and to some degree it is um, you know, it's, it's bittersweet you see the older the older scholars who keep coming to the conferences after they have retired and you see them slowly vanish right and then you see the new people coming in the young ones it's it's amazing you see this whole stream of, 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 of life, basically, you know, youth to old age coming in and the going out. And, you know, the older I've become, of course, the, the more my perspective has changed because now I'm, I'm in the latter group. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with the old folks on my way out. Uh, the young ones, uh, you know, you'll go and somebody's giving a, a presentation, a paper, we call it. You give a paper. Hey, you've never heard of this person before, or they're very young, and you're amazed by what they're telling you, right? It's like, oh, wow, this is really weird. Or you see some really young person who just stumbles his or her way through, and, and you say, oh, my God, oh, poor poor soul. Yeah. Poor soul, oh, my God, oh, Lord. And uh, it's competitive. People get very competitive. They get touchy. Some people get very territorial, as you can imagine. Right. 
Uh, some people love to share. Some people are afraid to share. Right. Some people don't like to share. And you meet all kinds of different personalities types, right? But basically, everyone is, um, how should I put this? Everyone is competing, but at the very same time, trying to be fraternal. So there's not a whole lot of fistfights in the parking lot at these conventions, right? No, but every now and then, you know, um, oh, you have uh, virulent disagreements. You know, people get nasty with each other in the room. Yeah. Well, I've seen I've seen some real uh, knockouts, uh, knock not no, not knockouts, but uh, knockdown yeah. fights, verbal, not yeah. physical. It's one funny story. I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but. Um, at one meeting of the American Academy of Religion. So I'm told, I did not witness this, but someone I know very closely said he witnessed it. Look, local prostitutes, uh, they just think that this is like a convention. They show up. <laughs> so my friend was in, in the elevator, but two obviously uh, prostitutes showed up and we're talking to each other. And this is the American Academy of Religion. So they were both very disappointed. I said, I've never seen a convention like this. So much drinking and so little sex. <laughs> well, that's saying something. I yes. think it's a compliment, I think. <laughs> yes, I suppose, you know. Um, you, you see everything. Uh, you hear everything. There are people who avoid you for various reasons and... Uh, Bookselling, you know, yeah. all the major booksellers show up at these conferences and you you get to see what's coming out because they have their little display table and you just get to see what's coming out. And, and you know the people, some of them who have written those books and you go talk to them about the book and so on and so forth. It's, it's yeah. you know, in a way it's, 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 it's wonderful to have that kind of community. I've been lucky enough in both of them the places that I've taught, done most of my teaching, University of Virginia and now at Yale, I've always had uh, other professors, uh, colleagues who work in the same area. So it's very nice to have the, the, the kind of collegiality and friendship of someone whose work you admire and respect and you learn from. And you know, occasionally, you know, there'll be social occasions where we mingle with the uh, graduate students, uh, and even people who teach other subjects. <laughs> I have found, and having been a member of some of these, you know, subcultural clubs, so to speak, that there's always some hot button issue that no one's ever going to quite settle. Or get. I was part of a record, oh, yeah. uh, record jazz collecting group that was, and when I say jazz, I mean like early 20th century. Bebop was not real jazz, you know, but. Um, you know, the argument there was like one group was no good music's been made since 1928. And then there was some group that want to accept like the thirties and forties jazz. I mean, they're all friendly and it's kind of a right. funny thing, but some can get pretty spirited about their opinions. Oh yeah. No, we, we you know, people can get really hot under the collar about uh, differences of opinion. Um, and there are schools, right? Schools of thought that oppose each other. And um, there was one man, Gerald Strauss, a historian at uh, University of Indiana for many years. Gerald Strauss wrote a book entitled Luther's House of Learning, in which he argued that um, the Lutheran Reformation was a failure and that Lutherans actually 
uh, are the source of this information. In the 17th century, Lutheran clergy were very displeased with the behavior of most Lutherans. So anyway, as you can imagine, he instantly won himself the enmity of just about every Lutheran historian. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And there are very, very heated uh, discussions uh, between, you know, Straussians and anti-Straussians, uh, things of this sort. If you Google my name and Satan together, you will find a website that ties me to Satan. Wow, really? Yes, yeah. Try it when we're when we're done. Okay. See. Somebody was very upset at the fact that I, a Catholic and a Cuban, dared to write about Protestantism. Huh. And he said, I, I twist Calvin's words the same way that Satan twists Christ's words. Did that hurt you when you saw it? No, oh, I laughed. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I laughed. Actually, I, you know, I pity I pitied the man. Yeah. Or as Mr. T used to say, I pity the fool. That's right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Pity the fool. Poor guy. Yeah. He has such a constricted worldview right. and so uh, unchristian, actually, in an ecumenical sense. Right. I'm sure he wouldn't view himself as unchristian. I'm the one who's not a real Christian in his eyes. So, yeah, when you deal with religion, you're always dealing with a live wire. You know, it's like one of those uh, electrical lines down by a storm. Yeah. That's sparking on the ground. You don't dare go near it. That's religion. And then there are people who become very close friends, and there are people who become bitter enemies uh, in the academic profession. It's like any other profession, I guess, except, you know, we we argue over things that most people don't care about. But to the people that uh, wrestle with them, I guess it, it means everything. It's, everything's on the line here on particular yeah. beliefs and all that. Yeah, and um, it's inevitable with religion, which is why, you know, even within the Anabaptist tradition, you have so many branches of the Anabaptist tree, is people have differences of opinion. The They're not just personal, they become social, mm. and then they become political, and you end up with different institutions. I, I'm just glad that, you know, we no longer skin people alive for having the wrong opinion right literally we still do it metaphorically unfortunately if you're still in a reformation mood give our previous conversations with dr air a listen which are episodes 245 248 and 252 if you're interested in American history, on episode 258, we talked to Dr. Jason Stevens about the great compromiser Henry Clay in that period leading up to the Civil War. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.